Hello and welcome to People Places Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we talk about international reputation and foreign policy and a few other issues along the way. And today we're thinking about an issue that is at the heart of communication, and that is the issue of trust. You can't think about media without addressing the issue of credibility, and for something to be credible, it needs to be trusted. And this quality of trust is an essential component of the landscape of communication and international image, international reputation. And yet, we know that this essential quality of trust is in some ways changing, shifting uh, at, at the moment. So let's start to unpack trust. Simon, it strikes me that, that when you talk about national images being stable, what you could you another way of framing that would be to say that national images are are trusted. The countries that have the strongest image are trusted to deliver in the qualities that people admire them for. And the findings you've got about people's opinions not changing really is 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 showing up a degree of 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 trust invested in the strongest uh, performers in in the world of international reputation. Do do you think that's fair? Actually, no, I don't, because what what the Nation Brands Index measures uh, is comparative. Uh, the uh, comparative appeal of countries. So if the results are stable year on year, which as we know they are, all that tells us is that the relative respect that or interest that people have in other countries doesn't alter very much. The pecking order remains the same. But what I'm not measuring is how people's feelings about countries in general uh, rise and fall. Right. So, what we see in the Edelman Trust Barometer, uh, you, you say that at the moment, trust has become somewhat volatile. I think it's always been volatile. I think the, the institutions or the bodies or the people that we trust in as a human population is in constant flux. And you only have to look at Edelman's summary of the, the, the headlines that they've given to their findings over the last 20 years or so. And without forcing it, they do come up with a different headline every year. This year, the headline is that um, businesses are the only institutions that anybody trusts anymore. That wasn't mm -hmm. the case a few years ago. And it, it's in constant flux. So the Nation Brands Index doesn't tell me about that. It only tells us which countries, if you like, people trust more than others. But if they're generally trusting countries less and less, it, we wouldn't know about that. Having said all that, there is, of course, a big difference between trust in countries and trust in governments. And one of the clear messages that comes out of the Edelman barometer uh, in recent years is that whatever trust people might have had in governments is sliding mercilessly right. downwards. The NBI reflects this. It's very, very unusual for people in the Nation Brands Index to trust the governance or the governments of more than a handful of countries. Very unusual for them to trust their own government. Um, on the other hand, 
what Edelman doesn't measure and I do measure is how much people trust other countries as mm. a complete entity. And that tends to throw together the people of that country, the institutions, the government, and in mm. a funny kind of way, everything else as well, the landscape, the products, the history, the culture. And I would it would be interesting to find out whether people's trust in countries per se is also declining. Um, I'm not sure whether it is or it isn't. In a sense, it's a useless question thinking about it because a country per se doesn't really behave in a given way. A government can. So, you know, I can trust Germany, but if I don't trust the German government, then trusting Germany is no use to me. I can trust the Polish people, but if I don't trust Polish companies, then, you know, that's a problem too. So it's quite a complex picture. And perhaps this whole idea of trusting a country rather than, as opposed to trusting an individual component or institution of the country is a, is a bit of a red herring. Well, Ed, there is a point of intersection where Edelman asks if people trust countries as brands. Mm. And what he found is that nearly everybody is less trusted right now, with the US and China both falling dramatically over the last year by about five points. But he, he, the country that people trust more is South Korea, where it's gone up substantially, and slightly Mexico. And the country that is held firm in people's uh, assessment is Italy. And so those are all countries that are flagged as being of interest by the Nation Brands Index, I think. I'm just looking, I'm looking at the, at the Edelman report for 2021. And the chart where South Korea shows that uh, trust in it has uh, increased between January and May 2020 by 16 points, that says government. I'm also not sure whether that's amongst Korean citizens or an average of the global panel that they question. We should really have somebody from Edelman on the, on the show one of these days so that we can, uh, we can ask them these questions. Maybe when 2022 comes out, that would be the that would be the moment they'd be interested in talking yeah. about their findings. I mean, over the long period of Edelman, one of the things that I've been interested in is the well, when he first did it, which must be now 20 years ago, NGOs showed up as being very, very much trusted. And the shine has gone off of NGOs for, for many people around the world. I think that's an interesting finding. But what always seemed to me to be the most interesting and relevant finding for the era of social media is the power of similarity and the extent to which people trust somebody who is like themselves. And, you know, I've, it's always occurred to me as a, as a historian, studying where things go wrong in communication. Why does somebody trust a confidence trickster? Why does somebody not detect a spy? And the, the defense is always the same. But he was so like me. He went to my school. Our mothers knew each other. We, we have the same place of worship. And whether you're talking about Bernie Madoff or Kim Philby or any other number of deceitful people, they were able to get away with it because of, of, of similarity. So it, it, it seems that human beings suspend a lot of mistrust when uh, somebody is is similar to them. And, and that's certainly a, a finding that Edelman has shown up, but that then 
uh, I think, gets us into a problem with social media where people information is being shared by somebody who's similar. In fact, it's possible to get all of your information from somebody who's in exactly the same demographic group as you. And we know that for some people, this means an echo chamber. It also makes public diplomacy harder, as necessarily we are not like the people we're trying to communicate with, because public diplomacy is communication across lines of inter international difference. And and the big challenge, the big problem with trusting peop the people who are most like yourself is that it precludes greater expertise. You trust people even if they, because they're like you, even if they don't know anything about the thing you want to trust them on. Well, I think that, that that's come out during COVID, though historically people have trusted experts. And mm. it's also been interesting to see how, well, with public diplomacy, you have a chance of connecting people who are similar. So if, if students trust students, what you do is expose students to students from other countries who can then get to know you, you get to know them, and, and you can use this power of similarity to build in international understanding. So I certainly think that work in public diplomacy, it's possible to harness the power of trust yes. and the, through similarity. It's interesting, this gradual loss, well, rather rapid loss of trust in government is a gigantic problem for democracy because democracy depends on trust in government. The party political systems are built on trust because in effect, when, you, when you're not living in a direct democracy, you the citizen have nothing to do with policymaking. The whole thing is vested in the trust you feel in the party that you've elected. You, you vote them in on the basis that you trust them to make the right decision on all and any topics that might arise during their term in office. Now, if that isn't a system that's entirely 100% based on trust, I don't know what it is. And so democracy is threatened by the loss of trust in government. Because if you don't trust any party to do the right thing for you over the coming four to six years, then democracy becomes absolutely meaningless. I was um, taking part in, a, in an event the other day, which was on the subject of loss of trust as a result of the, of the pandemic. And a lot of the participants who were connected with government were saying, this is a problem that people no longer trust government. We've got to find a fix for it. And I found myself saying to them, well, don't you think it would be better before we start trying to find fixes if we actually try and work out why people have lost trust in government? Because the, the obvious reason is because governments have deserved the trust of, trust of people less and less and less as time has go, gone on. And there isn't a mechanism to re-energize or rebuild or recreate that trust if it's been lost. The only way you can get trust back again is by earning it again, by being trustworthy. And so I think it's, it, it's very, very premature of governments to start saying, what are the techniques for causing people to trust us again? There's only one, and that's being trustworthy. And it's going to take you a long time right. if you've lost it. Uh, but in any case, I often think that the danger is overstated. I think it's really healthy if people don't trust governments. I think the fundamental basis of a healthy democracy <laughs> is a healthy mistrust. Otherwise, you don't keep your eye on them. Otherwise, you don't watch them. Otherwise, you don't pay attention to what they're doing. And it can easily turn into blind trust, which is dangerous for everybody. But there can also, there's a, there can also be a problem here of, of similarity versus dissimilarity, because we can see that the governments that people do trust are local government. And there is a big split now 
between deadlock at the national level and mandates at the city level. I think we've talked about this before, comparing the kind of mandates that are are voted to mayors like Garcetti in Los Angeles or Khan in London Uh, And national governments just don't have that kind of... uh, Hidalgo in Paris, too. National governments just don't have that level of of trust or that mandate from voters. And it may be that if you are living locally, you you feel... A, a connection to a, a mayor that is not possible or, or not invested in a national leader. Yeah, this, is, this is exactly why over the years I've said many times that countries are just too big. And the idea that it's possible to govern a country that contains tens or even hundreds of millions of people is just a fantasy, because it means that the people who are sitting in the capital have no real daily connection with the people that they're governing and therefore no opportunity really to build trust. They're dealing with things that have actually relatively little relevance to the everyday lives of people. So a mayor like Garcetti or Khan has an inbuilt unfair advantage because they're seen to be dealing every day with the issues that concern their voters. And they only have to make the, the right decision a few times out of 10 for that to result in them being pretty thoroughly trusted. And that, by the way, is the reason why I suspect right now as a result of the loss of trust in all the other institutions, the only one left is business. Why is that? Well, because business in general, but more particularly your own employer, is the person who pays your mortgage or your rent. They're the person who houses you during the day. They're the person that lets you go out to have lunch or gives you lunch. And in any case, people like businesses because businesses are about shopping and shopping is the thing that most people like most. So one way or another, none of this is altogether surprising. I just wish that it were possible to think of a way of converting the failing trust into something more useful than generalized depression and negativity, converting it into a useful and productive skepticism. So the scales have fallen from our eyes. Now we know that we shouldn't blindly trust any institution, not even the charities, because as we've seen, wonderful charities are capable of abhorrent misdeeds. Um, so, so that's good. Time to grow up and time to start thinking a bit harder and watching a bit more closely what these people do. Can we do that? Is there a way, as I say, of converting that, that mistrust into a healthy and productive scepticism so that we as citizens take on more of the responsibility for seeing that these things are done properly or to our liking? Well, that would be an ideal situation, but I, I feel that the way that media has operated has infantilized voters over the yes. years and has encouraged them to mistrust their own judgment. And it, it, maybe the most dramatic finding in Edelman is the mistrust of media, actually, mm. that of all the institutions, media is trusted the least, business the most, media the least. I mean, but again, you can really mess with people <laughs> by pointing out uh, hey, haven't you noticed that media is a business? And part yeah. of the reason you can't trust media is because it's a business and it's trying mm. to sell stuff to, to you or even sell you as a uh, commodity to its advertisers. So, so there's an interesting clue in that, isn't it? The media is a type of business. Business is trusted and media isn't. What's the difference between them? Well, ordinary businesses, non-media businesses are honest about their objectives. They want to make money out of you. The media tries to disguise it. Yes. And that's a very good reason for trusting one and not the other. 
Yeah, and I think the other thing is the the uh, as you said earlier, people have a lot of trust in their own employer. That's necessarily mm. a local manifestation, and sometimes media right now is you know r- remote, coming to you from goodness knows where, a place a, lo- a long way away, and maybe doesn't have that local manifestation. But one thing that Pew has found, which maybe puts a little bit of nuance on trust, on the Edelman findings is that as a result of COVID, people were trusting their own governments a little more, even if they trusted everybody else's less, and Mm. thought that their own, there was a tendency for people to think that their own government was doing a good job with COVID, even if it thought other people's governments were doing badly. And I wonder if this is a manifestation of the, what do they call it, the rally round the flag effect, that when there's a crisis, at least when somebody's being asked by a, a pollster, they don't want to criticise their own government, even if they're very forthright in their criticism of, of other people's governments, which does yes. seem to be the case. I, I think it's uh, I think that's true, but I think it's also connected to what we were saying before about the unfair advantages of mayors. Governments during d- domestic crises, which is what COVID is, it's a multi-domestic crisis, policymakers are seen every day to be working hard to try to save the lives of as many citizens as possible. And even if they're perceived to be doing it the wrong way or not producing the desired results or what have you, nonetheless, it gives you this reassuring sense of they're working for us. And so I would argue that that's possibly the reason why right across the board now, we see a slight uptick in trust for one's own government because we can see them trying to do their best for us. And, and, and what the picture that begins to emerge out of all of these discussions of trust is that actually trust isn't really about competence. You don't trust people because they've delivered miracles necessarily. You trust them because they say the truth, because they tell the truth about what they're doing and they don't try and hide or disguise things from you. The reason I posited before why people mistrust media is because it's, it's performed this, this saintly act over the years of not being motivated by, by money because business is straight about it, business hasn't suffered from the same degree of, of, of loss of trust. Governments are mistrusted today because they have so comprehensively shown that they're not to be trusted, that they're deceitful, that they tell us whatever they think will make us shut up and go away. And I, I would argue, I mean, I'm no expert, but I would argue that perhaps the core to trust is more to do with transparency and honesty than it is to do with service delivery or competence. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what, one thing for me that comes out of all this is understanding that different people trust slightly different institutions or have different experiences, and it speaks to the importance of partnership. If mm. we all trust somebody who's similar to us or local to us, uh, but we still need to address one of these problems that is transnational, one of the great problems of our moment, you're not going to find a single entity that is as trustworthy to every person who needs to be part of a coalition. So the importance of partnership is really, once again, underlined. Thinking in terms of partnership, working to build partnership, and maybe even you know developing trust in partnerships. that include business as well as national government, as well as local government, as well as non-governmental, so that that one can can somehow get the best of all worlds. 
What you said there about uh, about trusted international institutions is 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 really very interesting. It it made me think as you were speaking how very very fragile the world's trust is in the world's institutions for the simple reason that we can't know anything about how they operate or even what they do most of the time. So there's a sort of default basic trust towards, for example, the United Nations, but it's so fragile. And all it takes is a particularly forthright individual like Trump, for example, to -hmm. start pulling apart people's expectations, because that's all they are, of, for example, the World Health Organization. And it's gone. The trust in the World Health Organization is in tatters. And it's got Mm -hmm. nothing to do with what they've, well, very little to do with what they've done or failed to do. It's simply because one individual has noticed how incredibly fragile that international trust in international institutions necessarily is. So there, the UN family is well aware of this. The big, big, big question for them is how do we engender a more solid, less uh, fragile trust internationally? amongst our stakeholders, bearing in mind that our stakeholders are ordinary people living in 200 countries who are very, very far away from us, who are very far removed from the issues we deal with every day and are unlikely to take the time or trouble to sit down and learn about what we do. Under those circumstances, how can you possibly engender trust? And yet trust is what you need and you have to have to protect you against the next Trump, if nothing else. Yeah, no, absolutely. You can see how the UN has the has the is almost like a convergence of the untrustworthy. You know, it's an institution. It's not. It's mm-hmm. not as not not particularly transparent. It's remote, and, and I think that that's why the UN has pioneered the use of partnerships, and has always been looking for people who are trustworthy to particular audiences. You know, uh, it, it, from an early stage, it was making use of celebrity spokespeople and mm. working as locally as as, as it could. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, maybe this is also a problem for the European Union that, mm. you know, faceless bureaucrats in a different city, different country, taking mm. your taxes. It, it, it's easy to get people stirred up against them against an institution like that. Absolutely right. Although, of course, it does depend very much on whether you're somebody who, who firmly believes that you live in Europe or whether you're just somebody who lives in your own country, which happens to be a member of the European Union. Hence, the differences in trust in the EU between, say, the UK and a strongly Europhiliac country like, for example, Poland. In, in, in Poland, there's because there's so much goodwill and gratitude towards the European Union generally. There's a feeling that um, the, the EU, they're dealing with our stuff every day over there in Brussels. They're working to our interests because we're Europeans and we're proud of it. You find the same thing in strongly, traditionally Europhile countries like Italy as well. In the UK, no, it's distant bureaucrats in Brussels doing things about which we know nothing that are probably not in our interest. I know, let's leave. Yes. <laughs> so, and again, but again, the problem, you know, uh, who says there's a problem? The problem mm. is coming from media who want to sell newspapers. The, whatever the well, reality is in Brussels, it's one of the problems that British newspapers found people could be stirred up around. People would get energized about and mm. and, you, you know, you could get them buying papers and cheering along. So what's the answer? I mean, if the commercial media is potentially so destructive, and it's 
implicated in so many of these really gigantic problems. What can we do about it? Well, I certainly think partnership has to be part of the the way forward. I, I also think that what we will see is a return of the major, in, if you like, the information brands, the, the particular parts of the global media market which are more reliable. And I, I think we can already see how people are paying more attention to authoritative international media. Uh, and, and so working with the, the, working with that, affirming that we, you know, we need the BBC, for example, we need yeah. the Washington Post. Yeah, I mean, it would be it would be lovely to believe that in the end, truthfulness will earn its own reward, as I suggested earlier, that if you always uh, take care to tell the truth and you're always balanced and you're always transparent and you're not swayed by commercial interests, then you will earn the trust of people. And the BBC has certainly done that over the years. On the other hand, Fox News, which doesn't tell the truth, is the most popular cable channel in the United States. It's widely watched, it's widely trusted, it's widely believed in. So is it just different people's versions of the truth, different people's ideas of what the truth is? And are we just stuck with that forever? It's getting a bit philosophical, isn't it? But, you know, there's there's money to be made in affirming people's identity. And, you know, that's basically the business strategy of the Daily Mail in the UK. But I think that at least having a discussion about this and asking people to consider why something is an issue, why is X an issue and not Y, is constructive. So I'm, I'm sure that the whole process of thinking critically about media that, that, that's coming out of the discussion around vaccines, for example, is, is constructive. And we're seeing even Fox News is has accepted that there is a certain reality of, you know, one set of behaviours, people survive the pandemic, another set of behaviours, people disproportionately die, and are saying, oh, you know, you really should go and get vaccinated. So that, the, that but perhaps the pandemic brings us face to face with, with a, a, a reality that the world is not just as you might wish it to be, but there is a bottom line of life and death and health versus disease. And you can't just talk a thing up the way you can, uh, um, you know, a, a stock that you're trying to sell, which I think has, has been part of the way media has, has been able to work for the, for the last 20, 30 years. For what it's worth, my, my belief about all of this, the way to resolve this problem of the media and this problem of truth and trust, I think that it's got, we're, we're far more likely to make progress by changing ourselves than we are by trying to change the media. Of course, we shouldn't give up on trying to change the media, but the realities of commerce are there and they're not going to go away anytime soon. And the realities are that people do enjoy and do want to pay money for sensational and not necessarily truthful reporting. What we need to focus on is immunizing ourselves against mm. that and becoming more careful. And I think you used the phrase just now, more critical in our thinking, mm -hmm. which is exactly the reason why I've been pushing this project, uh, The Good Generation, which argues, amongst many other things, for universal teaching of critical thinking uh, right. to children at a very young age. And I find it, as I, as I said in a previous uh, edition of our podcast, 
impossible to watch something like the storming of the Capitol building without asking myself, how different would this scene have been if the people there storming the Capitol had been taught critical thinking when they were at school? It's not a difficult thing to teach. It's a, it's a subject that, that, um, that kids rather enjoy if it's taught well. And that would just be, you know, we have the vaccine against the pandemic. That would be part of the vaccine against pretty much every other global challenge that we can think of today. What you're talking about there is is ironic because you're talking about restoring trust by teaching mistrust. And exactly. But one of the problems in, in the United States is that whichever side of the political spectrum people are tends to be taught by just take it from me on blind faith that this yeah. is the way things the way things are uh, saying work it out for yourself is uh, and giving people the intellectual tools to do that i think has been n- neglected so i think we're i think we're in uh, agreement there that the way forward is to encourage critical thinking to help people be stewards of their own media consumption to you know we can teach people social distancing and then there's a, a scholar of information, uh, Nina Yankovitz, who says it's time for information distancing, for teaching people to keep their, their media at arm's length. And as you're careful not to cough on people, be careful not to pass on untrustworthy information. You see, you, you, you rightly point out that there's something ironic about that, but it res- the irony resolves itself because by teaching people to be more critical, to be more alert, to be more aware, to think harder... Yes, in the first instance, that does mean they'll probably end up trusting fewer people and fewer sources than they currently do. But what that does over the longer term and more broadly across society is it creates a context in which real trust then can be earned on a basis of truthfulness. And I think that's where we have to get to. We basically have to reset society. And the only way we can reset society is by training our young people in a different way. Yes, to make them more sceptical in the first place. Yes, to break down everything so that we can build it up again. Well, I think that that's got us into some great themes. Maybe a future podcast we should think about education uh, as, as an element in international reputation. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks so much for listening. This has been People Places Power. I'm still Nick Cull. I'm still Simon Anhalt, or so they say.